this episode of Modern Practice, we'll continue our discussions about the unique challenges of cardiac surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations at Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Rachel Mack, RN, Consulting Director in Clinical Documentation Improvement at Vizient. Rachel, welcome back to Modern Practice. Thanks for having me, Tom. Talk to me about cardiac surgery. Do these patients do well after their discharges? So I'm tongue-in-cheek. Again, my short answer is no. (laughs) Now, that's not entirely true, but many of them do well. Unfortunately, readmissions, status post-cardiac surgery, are extremely frequent. They are some of the highest for all of the surgical services across the country. Right now, their readmission rate is looking almost 20%. It's sitting at 18.7% of them are readmitted within 65 days of their surgery. And the typical reasons that they are usually readmitted is infection, either of that sternal wound or one of their other either calf or arm wounds, or maybe they have sepsis from another source. Maybe they got a UTI, something like that. Arrhythmia is another huge reason these patients are admitted. Again, when you have that cardiopulmonary bypass, turning their body off and back on again, your heart can respond very oddly. Also, it's been operated on. So sometimes it's just a reactive arrhythmia. And then another reason patients come in, (laughs) the research says it's volume overload. Us on the call, we know it's heart failure, right? They don't get adequate either medication or follow-up or chest x-rays or whatever the case may be. And they come back to the hospital in a flagrant CHF exacerbation. Other interesting thing about these readmissions is those readmission stays for these patients is five days on average. So they're not coming in for a day or two, getting fixed and sent home. These are longer stays that they're really getting extensively worked up for, unfortunately. I think it states to the importance of not only your transitions to care management, but making sure these patients have appropriate follow-up. Oh, absolutely. And making sure that any barriers that they have for medications, PTOT, whatever appointments they are, any financial hardship, that absolutely needs to be addressed. And again, I think our case managers across the country are pretty dang good (laughs) at doing that. But some patients either are not going to follow instructions or can't follow instructions because of that financial hardship. Or this actually came up yesterday in our big webinar we did, transportation issues. If you can't drive and you have no one to get you from point A to point B, guess what? You're going to miss every single follow-up appointment. And you may be slowly going into that CHF exacerbation that could have been fixed if you got weighed at the doctor's office and they saw that you'd gained three or four pounds. So lots of compounding issues when it comes to readmissions in cardiac surgery. Rachel, we're about to go and speak about valvular surgery, but it's important to note specifically for the non-clinical listeners is that for cardiac surgery, or particularly for cabbages, which is uh, coronary artery bypass surgeries, we're doing them on older patients. We're doing them on patients who have already had previous less invasive procedures. So the arteries or the coronary arteries that these surgeons have to deal with are pretty damaged by the time they go into the surgery. So what I'm getting at is that compared to even as little as 10 years ago, these patients are far more complicated or we're doing these surgeries on sicker patients than we historically have done before. So that's probably why some of the reasons we're seeing these higher complications during, after, and the importance of following up afterwards. Absolutely, Tom. It's interesting you bring that up because I always got a story for everything. You know what I mean? (laughs) I had a cardiac surgery patient who, he was a male, doing great, did great after surgery, was extubated around the four-hour mark. Our physicians were obsessed in a good way with getting the patients up to the chair. You got to get up to the chair. You got to move your rear end. So it was 6 a.m. had him up to the chair. And his brother, who was around his same age, came and visited him. They were both in their 70s. His brother's mouth dropped open looking at his brother up in the chair. He said, Rachel, 
I had a cabbage times like three or four 20 years ago. He said, I was in the hospital for 18 days. I was left intubated. No one walked me, got me up to the chair, did anything. So we're doing incredible work in getting these patients up, getting them moved. But there is a lot more work to be done, especially since these patients are sicker and sicker and sicker. And I feel like every five or 10 years, this just gets to be, I was going to say worse and worse, but more interesting with how many comorbid conditions our average patient has in the hospital. We already mentioned that we're seeing in reference to cabbage, the coronary artery bypass surgeries are becoming less common and we're doing it more commonly on patients who are sicker. But what are the most common cardiac surgeries we see currently? Absolutely. So cabbage is going to be your number one, (laughs) number one, most common cardiac surgery. And again, Tom, it's so interesting. You mentioned that because the likelihood of someone who has a cabbage, if they're less than 70, having another one before they, if they are privileged and fortunate enough to to live into that older age, they might definitely get another one. So it's kind of crazy. Cabbage is the most common, but then we have our valve replacements. We have mitral valve replacement, aortic valve, and tricuspid valve replacement. And they're all abbreviated either MVR, AVR, or TVR. And patients can have one valve replaced at a time. I have absolutely seen patients have all three valves replaced at a time. I have also seen uh, cabbage times two with an MVR, cabbage times three with an AVR. So they're doing as much as they can in that one fell swoop because this surgery is so significant and they don't want to have the patient have to go back to the OR again. So we have those surgeries, most common for sure. And then we have the newer TAVRs, that's T-A-V-R. This is a newer version of a tricuspid valve replacement that is minimally invasive, does not require a sternotomy, hallelujah, and does not require cardiopulmonary bypass, right? So these patients are typically only in the hospital one day. If they're doing poorly, maybe two, three, four, five, they are not in the hospital as long as these other cardiac surgeries. So unfortunately, there are some very strong contraindications for patients to have a TAVR. So if they have any of what I'm about to mention, they will not qualify for that TAVR. So if they have additional valve disease, they can only have tricuspid valve disease. If they have additional valve disease, they cannot have a TAVR. If they have an inadequate annulus size, you got to have a perfect annulus size in order to qualify for this TAVR, and some patients just don't. If they have any endocarditis, and a lot of our valve patients, unfortunately, that's how they got this condition in the first place. So a surgeon won't touch an endocarditis patient with a tab or with a 10-foot pole. If they have had a myocardial infarction within one month of their planned TAVR, and again, TAVRs are typically planned. These are not emergent, urgent things that we're doing in the hospital. But if they've had an MI within that month of surgery, they're not going to qualify for a TAVR. And then if they have, lastly, untreated Note it's untreated. It can be treated, but if it's untreated, coronary artery disease, pulmonary hypertension, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they do not qualify for a TAVR. So the reason that our regular old valve replacement surgeries that again have that sternotomy, they have to go under cardiopulmonary bypass, the reason those are so much more common still is because there's still so many contraindications for having a TAVR, which just is what it is. And that might change over the next few years as medicine gets more advanced and surgery gets more advanced. We talked about the challenges involved with cardiac procedures and their patients. So what makes cardiac surgery patients difficult for CDI specialists and coders? Yeah. So one of the most difficult aspects of cardiac surgery reviews is the fact that most cardiac surgery patients, and I mentioned this on the previous episode, even if they're doing well, even if they're doing great, 
they require low dose vasopressors postoperatively. And in the ICU space, we call that a whiff of Levofen, <laughs> right? They're on one or two or three, you know, like it's not a big deal that this medication, it has to be put through a central line and we kind of joke about it. But typically we're talking one, two or three mics a minute of Levofen. That's a whiff. Because those patients are on vasopressors, that doesn't mean that they're in shock. So again, going back to the fact that they require that cardiopulmonary bypass, we turn their body off and back on again, it is very normal to be on low-dose levofed postoperatively. And now, to me, if you've never cared for ICU patients, that's really tough to identify because you've kind of been hammered into your head. Well, if someone requires vasopressors, they must be in shock. No, that is not always the case on cardiac surgery patients. Now, however, let's say you've got a patient who we are having to crank up their levofed. We had to give them a blood transfusion. Their lactic acid is going up on their ABGs after surgery, and they're really starting to look shocky. Now, that patient may very likely be in shock, especially if they've got that associated low blood pressure. Also, we'll see the, the crazy thing about cardiac surgery patients. We will, I hate to say overload them, but they can be on as many as three or four vasopressors in that critically ill shock period. So that's the type of thing we're looking for, for shock patients, not, oh, they're on a whiff that they must be in shock after surgery. That's just not the case. Besides shock, some other common documentation improvement opportunity for these patients, encephalopathy. <laughs> Again, when you are an elderly patient, and this can happen to you for younger patients too, but if you're an elderly patient and you are put on cardiopulmonary bypass, you are at very high risk of developing either a metabolic or a toxic or a combined encephalopathy postoperatively. And again, looking at these conditions, these are patients, once they're extubated, they are confused way off from their baseline, especially if their baseline's alert and oriented times three. They are typically, because cardiac surgeons don't play around, right? You cannot pull that stuff out. That is not allowed. You are going to die if you pull that stuff out. So they will absolutely do mittens and restraints and medications and all those things, which as we know for elderly patients that can further compound the problem. So definitely be on the lookout for a specified encephalopathy, or maybe they're not quite that intense, not too bad. Maybe they're just having a delirium that you need to get specified. The other thing too, Tom already mentioned, these patients are older. They may be in their second cabbage. If they already have a dementia at their baseline, one, everyone's going to know this, right? This is going to be part of their past medical history. This isn't going to be a surprise postoperatively, but these patients may absolutely be in the ICU an extra day or two because once we extubate them, try and get them to the chair, they may be quite a bit off from their baseline. And if their baseline is they recognize their daughter, they recognize their son, they know they watch their soap operas on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever the case may be, they may be way off kilter from that. They may even be aggressive, pulling things out. They may be violent and that can take several days to fix. So CDI, coders, quality folks definitely be on the lookout for an encephalopathy either by itself or a specified encephalopathy superimposed on a dementia. Rachel, great discussion. On the next episode, we'll continue with steps we can take to remedy these challenges. And to our listeners, you can contact Rachel at her email address in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visiantinc.com. We've posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.